This is the guide to night sky in April. My name is Nick Lom. I'm Curator of Astronomy at Sydney Observatory. This podcast is available through the Sydney Observatory website, www.sydneyobservatory.com.au, and it's in the Astronomy section. It is always available at the beginning of each month. We'll start up the podcast by talking about the stars in the night sky and we'll consider what planets are visible at the end. To start off, it's a good idea to download the star map that's available through this website, a monthly sky map, and print it out. It would also help to equip yourself with a torch that should have a red colour. The way to convert an ordinary torch into a red torch is to put some red cellophane at the front. The idea of the red light it does not, that it does not destroy your adaptation to the night sky. You can look at a map and a piece of paper as well as looking up into the sky without having to wait for your eyes to adapt to the darkness again. Also, it's a good idea to make yourself familiar with the cardinal directions, north, south, east and west. East is, of course, where the sun rises. West is where the sun sets. And, of course, in April, it can start to become a little cool, so please dress suitably. To start, go outside, sit yourself down and listen to this podcast. We'll start off our tour of the April stars by facing north. We will see, of course, the familiar sight of the Australian night sky, the constellation of Orion, to our left and to the northwest. Orion is also visible during Australian summer evenings. Orion is an easily recognisable constellation, as it is made up of four stars in a rectangle, with three stars in a row in the middle. The three stars in the row in the middle represent Orion's belt. Just above the belt there's a line of three faint stars, and the middle one is the great nebula of Orion. These three stars represent the dagger of Orion, or sometimes they refer to as the sword of Orion. Of course you might find it a little odd that the giant Orion of Greek mythology bears his sword above his belt. The reason is, of course, that Orion was named in the Northern Hemisphere a long time ago. So when we look at Orion, we actually see Orion upside down. Now, as I said, the middle, slightly fuzzy star that we can see in Orion's dagger is the great Napoleon in Orion. This is the nearest large star-forming region to Earth. It is at a distance of 1,500 light-years from us. That is, light has taken 1,500 years to reach us from the Great Nebula in Orion. The Great Nebula is one of the more interesting objects to look at through a small telescope, because through a telescope we can see a little bit of fuzziness, and inside the fuzzy area we can see four stars in a slightly distorted rectangle in the middle. These four stars are very young stars, and they are referred to as the trapezium stars. The fuzziness around them is the gas and dust out of which new stars are currently forming. When astronomers look at the nebula with large telescopes and with special telescopes sensitive to infrared radiation, they can see hundreds of new stars being formed inside the huge cloud of dust and gas that forms the great nebula in Orion. 
Just looking through our own eyes, we can use Orion as a signpost to find other objects in the night sky. Let's move to the right of Orion, that is towards the east, and a little bit lower down, and we can see two bright stars close together. These two stars are almost due north in the early evening. The two stars are the two brightest stars in the constellation of Gemini, the twins. The top one is a star called Pollux, and the lower one is a star called Castor. Pollux is fairly close to us, at a distance of 34 light years. It is a giant star, slightly reddish, with a surface temperature about 4,500 degrees. This makes it a little bit cooler than our own sun. Our own sun has a surface temperature around 5,500 degrees. Pollux has a width 10 to 11 times as much as that of our own sun. Castor, the second of the two twin stars of Gemini, is a very interesting object. It is the layer of the two stars. At a distance of 51 light years from us, it is a little bit further than Pollux. That means the two stars are not actually related to each other, they just happen to lie in the same direction. To the unaided eye, Castor appears like a single star. But if you look at Castor through a telescope, you can see it is made up of two stars. These two stars circle around each other, taking about 460 years to do so. Of course, you would need a lot of patience to actually see any motion for such a long period. There is, in addition, a third faint reddish star in the system, but that one is much fainter and not quite as obvious as the other two stars. So far we mentioned three stars in Castor, the two stars that we can see through a telescope and a fainter reddish star all circling around each other. However, when astronomers examine each of the three stars in detail, they find that each of them is a double star. We cannot see these separately, we can not look through a telescope and see their companion stars. But when astronomers measure the velocities of the stars using a device called a spectroscope, they find that the objects are sometimes moving towards us and sometimes they're moving away from us. That can only happen if they're circling and there are two stars circling around each other. Each of these three stars in Castor is a double star in its own right. So, although looking at Castor with our own eyes, we can just see one object, it is in fact six stars. So we can look at this one pinpoint of light in the sky with our eyes, and we are actually seeing six stars in that direction, which is quite an amazing fact to know. These two stars, Pollux and Castor, are very prominent stars, and their legends associated with them. According to a legend from the ancient Greeks, these two stars protected sailors, especially the ship Argo, which travelled to retrieve the Golden Fleece. And the sailors on the Argo were always protected by these two stars, Pollux and Castor. Let us go towards the right, towards the east, and we reach the star Regulus. Regulus is a star that lies on the ecliptic, which is the path taken by all the planets and the sun and the moon as they move across the sky during the year. So, Regulus lies on the path taken by the moon, and that means that it is sometimes covered by the moon. When the moon covers a star, astronomers call that an occultation, and Regulus is often occulted by the moon. Regulus is the brightest star in the constellation of Leo the Lion. 
It is relatively close to us at a distance of 77 light years. The name Bericolus means the little king. The rest of the stars of Leo the Lion are quite faint and it can be quite difficult to make out the constellation. But Regulus is itself easy to find, so Regulus provides an easy way of finding the whole constellation of Leo the Lion. Regulus is a fairly bright star. It puts out somewhere around 140 times as much light as our own sun. So intrinsically it's bright, but it does not appear so bright in our own sky. It is a mass about three and a half times that of our own sun. Regulus is a companion star, so Regulus is a double star. That companion is a long way away from the main star of Regulus, something like 100 times as far away from Regulus as the dwarf planet Pluto is from our own sun. Since it is so far away, the companion takes a long time to circle Regulus. It takes 130,000 years. Obviously, nobody has actually seen the companion star to Regulus make a complete circuit. Now, if we go further towards the east, towards the right, and almost due east, we find the star Spica. Spica, again, lies on the ecliptic, just like Regulus. So Spica is also often occulted or covered by the moon. Spica is intrinsically a very bright star, which is at a distance of 260 light years from us. Spica appears fairly bright in our sky, but not as bright as it actually is. Close up, it puts out over 2,000 times as much energy as our own sun. Spica, as I said, is an eastern sky. One way of finding it is to look for a group of four stars which form a twisted rectangle in the sky. These are the stars of the constellation of Corvus the Crow. If you extend two of the stars of Corvus directly downwards, we reach Spica. That is the easiest way to be sure we're looking at the correct star. The sun tends to pass Spica in the northern spring's autumn or in the southern hemisphere spring. Because it passes in the northern hemisphere autumn, which is at harvest time, the name Spica means ear of wheat. So it is a star that is always associated with harvesting. If you look at Spica, it appears like one star, a single star. Even through a telescope, it appears like one star. But through a spectroscope, a device used by astronomers to break light up into its components, and a device which allows astronomers to measure the velocity of stars, astronomers can determine that Spica is made up of two stars circling around each other fairly quickly. They move very quickly, as I said. They circle around each other because they're very close. They take just four days to complete one circuit of each other. As the two stars are so close together, they are actually distorted. The shape of the stars is not a nice round globe that we always imagine stars to be, but their shape is something like that of a football. As they circle around each other during the four days that they take to do so, we see those footballs from different aspects. We actually see a slight variation of brightness of the star spiker during the four-day period due to this change of aspect. The football shapes that you can see during the four-day period that circle around each other 
are seen either end on or side on, and this obviously changes the brightness that we can see from a distance, and this gives rise to the changes in brightness. Let us move further in our tour of the April night sky, and let us move to the southern part of the sky. High up in the southeast, we can see the constellation of Southern Cross. Of course, the Southern Cross is a very obvious constellation in night sky, and a constellation of great significance to Australians. The Southern Cross is on the Australian flag. It's on delivery of several airlines, and numerous firms use the Southern Cross as part of their logo. It is a constellation very much recognisable in Australia. To be sure, when we look at the real Southern Cross up in the night sky, and to make sure that we're looking at the real Southern Cross and not the false cross, which is somewhere high up in the southern sky, it's important to look for the two stars directly below, the two pointer stars. And it is those two pointer stars which really indicate that we're looking at the right Southern Cross. As well, we can note that the stars of the real cross are brighter than the stars of the false cross, and they're closer together, much more compact than the stars of the false cross. The two pointer stars are known as Alpha and Beta Centauri. The lower one of the two pointers is called Alpha Centauri, and it is a star or star system that is closest to us in the sky. Light left Alpha Centauri four and one-third years ago, and it is reaching us today. If you look at Alpha Centauri through a small telescope, it is a very spectacular double star, two stars that are close together in the field of view of the telescope. To me, through a telescope, Alpha Centauri appears like a pair of car headlights in the distance, with the two lights close together. There's actually a third star in the system, but that one is out of the field of view of a small telescope, and it's also too faint to be easily seen through a small telescope. It's only recognisable by careful study of actual images of that part of the night sky. This third star is believed to be circling around the other two, and the current state of its path around the two main stars of Alpha Centauri means that it's slightly closer to us than the other two stars. Hence, astronomers have given this star the name Proxima Centauri, meaning that it's a close-by star of Centauri. Proxima Centauri is the closest star to us, but the closest star system is Alpha Centauri because Proxima is part of the same system. Above the pointers, as we've discussed, we find the bright stars of the Southern Cross. If we take the topmost star of the Southern Cross and the one on the right, and we extend the line through them towards the right, we move towards the west and we reach the bright star Canopus that is almost overhead, very high up in the southern sky. Canopus is the second brightest star in the sky after Sirius. It is a star that's 312 light years from us, and because it appears bright even at large distance, we can tell that it's intrinsically a very bright star. Astronomers have established that it gives off about 10,000 times as much energy as our own sun. It is a very light star, about 100 times the width of our own sun. The name Canopus comes from the name of a pilot of a fleet 
in ancient Greek times, and this fleet was sailing back from Troy after the battle there at Troy. According to ancient Greek legends, the name of the pilot was Canopus, and it seems the fleet pulled into the port of Alexandria in Egypt, and Canopus died at that port. At this place, the star Canopus was just visible over the horizon, so it was named after the pilot who had died in the city of Alexandria. Canopus is the brightest star in the constellation of Carina the Keel, and the keel refers to the ship Argo Nevis, the constellation known as the ship. Argo Nevis was once the largest constellation in that part of the sky, but it has since been broken up into three, Carina, Vila de Sails, and Pupis, which is the stern of the ship. The Milky Way passes through the northeastern part of these three constellations and contains many interesting clusters of stars and nebulae, which are sorts of fuzzy objects in the night sky. The most famous of these fuzzy objects is called Eta Carinae, or the Eta Carinae Nebula. This nebula is a large cloud of gas and dust surrounding the star, also called Eta Carinae. This is one of the largest stars we know about in the night sky. It is at least 350 times the mass of our own sun. The star is famous because in the 1830s and 40s it experienced an outburst and suddenly became very much brighter than it had been previously. During the outburst it became the second brightest star in the night sky after Sirius, which was then and still is the brightest star in the night sky. We should note, though, that Sirius is only nine light-years away. Eta Carinae is 7,500 light-years away from us. Hence, intrinsically, Eta Carinae is a much, much brighter star than Sirius. It had to become intrinsically extremely bright in the 1840s to appear in our night sky almost as bright as Sirius. During the outburst in the 1830s and 40s, Eta Carinae threw out a lot of dust, and that dust has formed a cocoon around the star and hides it from our view. That is why the star has become much fainter than it was in the 1830s and 40s. Intrinsically, the star is still bright, but it's inside the dust cloud, which hides it from our view. Infrared radiation is still transmitted through the dust dough. This dust creates its own infrared radiation, and Eta Carinae is the brightest source of infrared radiation in the night sky. There's a very famous and spectacular image by the Hubble Space Telescope of this cocoon of dust surrounding the star, and it looks like, on the image, like a brain, two halves of a brain. That is, of course, the two hemispheres of the dust cocoon surrounding the star. In recent times, astronomers have determined that Eta Carinae is not just a single star, but is two massive stars circling around each other. One of them is just over a hundred times as much massive as our own sun, and the other one is probably a little less than one hundred times as massive as our own sun. These two stars circling around each other roughly every five years. As these stars are so massive, they're believed to be near the end of their life cycles. 
Ita Karinai is the best candidate we have for a star about to go supernova, that is, to explode at the end of its lifetime. As light takes 7,500 years to reach us from Ita Karinai, it's quite possible that one of the stars of Ita Karinai have already exploded and created a supernova, but that is something we will not know until the light actually reaches us. Certainly, it is a prime candidate to be a supernova sometime between now and the next 10 or 20,000 years. If it does become a supernova, it will become very, very spectacular and not only become the brightest object in the night sky, rivaling and possibly becoming even brighter than the moon, but it will be visible even during daylight for months on end. Now let us turn to the special events and the position of the planets for this month of April 2013. This month's uh, summertime ends on the morning of uh, Sunday the 7th of April. It will end at 3am. So that means that uh, we can sleep in for an extra hour but also has the very nice uh, benefit that we can start watching the sky in the evenings at an earlier time. Another major event for the month is that there will be a partial eclipse of the moon. It is a particularly short and shallow eclipse with only 2%, one fiftieth of the moon's width um, immersed into the shadow of the earth. But still, it will be worth watching. Um, it will only be visible from Australia, but not, unfortunately, for those uh, people in New, Ze- in New Zealand. It will occur on the early morning of Friday, 26th of April, that is, the morning after Anzac Day. The moon will start moving into the shadow of the Earth at 5.52am, Australian Eastern Standard Time, and leaves the shadow at 6.23am. As I said, it's a very shallow eclipse, only a very tiny little bite will appear missing from the moon, but it will certainly be worth watching and looking out for that tiny bite. With regard to planets uh, in the evenings, Initially, there is only one planet visible, the bright planet Jupiter, but later on it is joined by the ring planet Saturn. So Jupiter is in the northwest sky, to the right or north of the bright star Aldebaran, which is the brightest star of the constellation of Taurus, the bull. On the 14th of April, the crescent moon is below and to the left or west of Jupiter, while on the next evening it is above and to the right or north of Jupiter. The ring planet Saturn appears low in the eastern sky during the second week of the month. On Anzac Day, on 25th of April, the gibbous moon is above and left or north of the planet. Of course, that will give us uh, a good opportunity to identify the position of Saturn having the gibbous moon nearby. On the next evening, that is on the evening of 26th of April, the moon will be full and it will be below and to the right or south of Saturn. Those of you who rise early will be able to see in the morning twilight the planet Mercury 
its low in the eastern sky. On the 8th of April, the crescent moon is above and to the left or north of Mercury. On the next evening, that is on 9th of April, uh, the crescent moon is below but still to the left or north of the planet. The planet Saturn, which has uh, become visible in the evening sky, is still visible in the morning sky, low in the western sky, in the constellation of Libra. That completes our guide to planets visible during the months of April 2013. This podcast is available each month on the Observatory website www.sydneyobservatory.com.au and you can find it in the astronomy section of the website. Alternatively, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. If you'd like more information on the night sky and have it available all year round in advance, you can purchase the Australasian Sky Guide that I prepare each year. Um, this publication is available through Sydney Observatory, Bauhaus Museum shops, or at good uh, bookshops throughout the country for the very low price of $16.95. It can also be ordered online through the Bauhaus Museum or Sydney Observatory websites, but obviously then there is a small mailing cost to be added to the prize as well. And this is the end of the podcast for April 2013.